From the very start, Intercom's mission has always been to make internet business personal. So it's not surprising that we've been podcasting for a long time, since 2012, in fact. Back then, our very first episode was hosted by Intercom co-founder Des Trainer. Hi, this is Des from Intercom. I'm recording the first in what I expect to be a series of interesting interviews. Just like we've helped tens of thousands of businesses of all types and sizes grow faster through better customer relationships, on the podcast, we've practiced what we preach through talking to people because we love conversation. Hundreds of trailblazers have joined us on the show over the years to share their experiences and insights on everything from product management, design, marketing, and a whole lot more, all for the benefit of you, the listener. This month, we have passed the 3 million download mark for the show. That just blows my mind. So to celebrate this 3 million milestone, I've dipped into the archive to pull out three of our most popular episodes. And on today's show, we're going to hear a little bit from each of them. So coming up, you'll hear Des Trainer and Intercom's Chief Product Officer, Paul Adams, chat about the principles we use to guide us as we build product and how they have evolved. Let's not do this again and then have a retro to learn the same thing we've already learned five times. Let's actually try and write it down. We stumbled upon principles, I think, as the best way to do that. That's one of our most downloaded episodes. So if you haven't heard it, you do not want to miss that. We'll also hear from Andrew Chen, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, talking about the changing landscape of customer acquisition. You know, when I look at some of the high profile cases that didn't work, there's a couple things that I think work in concert to make them more difficult. But first, how do you bring growth marketing to a high growth company? That was the question posed to Rachel Hepworth. Rachel now leads the marketing team at Notion. But back then in 2018, Rachel was head of growth marketing at Slack. Historically, Slack had relied heavily on virility for its growth. They had occasional advertising here and there. Adam Risman, former host of this podcast, asked Rachel, what made that point when Rachel joined Slack in 2016 the right time to invest in growth marketing? Because until then, at least publicly, it hadn't really been talked about as something that Slack was going to actively pursue. Here's Rachel. So in 2014 and 15, Slack had this incredible growth, but it's a growth off of a small base. And so it can be growth based off of your very early adopters. And for Slack, that is clearly the engineering and dev communities who love new tools. They love new ways of working. They hate things like email, anything old school. And they were happy to bring Slack on in their functional teams and say, let's experience with this new way of working. And it was very successful. As Slack expands into a larger enterprise product, goes outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, you have to start appealing to groups of people and types of roles and industries that aren't in that really early adopter group. So media companies, finance companies, retail companies, uh, sales functions, marketing functions, customer support, how do you attract these different types of people and build the value for Slack going wall-to-wall inside of a large company versus just going wall-to-wall in a startup of 10 people or being siloed in the engineering department of a larger company. So that involves a lot more education, a lot more outreach, and a lot more nurturing for people whose DNA is not to try new things and kind of scrappily figure out the best way to make it work. Somewhat similar to Climate Corp, we have to figure out how to tell them what the value is and serve them up the solution rather than saying Slack is here. All you have to do is enter your email to get started. 
we're pretty sure you'll be successful from there, which is the way we've been operating in the past. So I imagine there was a lot of low-hanging fruit sitting there for you when you walked in the door, which means prioritizing that was probably one hell of a challenge. Mm -hmm. Where did you start? Mm -hmm. What was your mindset? Mm -hmm. So we knew we were going to start with performance marketing, and that's partly because it's something the team had dipped their toes in. It had shown signs of success. It's something that uh, Stuart is particularly interested in because of its scalability. And Slack has obviously raised a lot of money, so it's something that we weren't hampered by budgets Mm -hmm. as long as the ROI was there. So the first thing we did was build out a pretty robust performance marketing team, and they're expanding their scope now. I think What's key about Slack's performance marketing team is it's very sophisticated compared to most. We use a multi-touch attribution system. There's no first click, last click. We track everything and we give credit for, you know, impressions, clicks, actual conversions. And we spent a lot of time and effort setting up that foundational system and making sure that our data was really good. So a lot of folks outsource performance marketing to agencies or use a simpler attribution system, which I think is fine and correct if your budget is smaller. But for the amount of money Slack is spending, we needed to bring in in-house. So that was really heavy lifting, but that performance marketing team is now driving a fairly hefty chunk of team creation And so it's been very successful, and it's what we spent most of 2017 building out. In 2018, there's going to be a lot of focus on the more typical demand gen function. So we have a lot of people going to Slack.com, and it's very simple to start a team. But for those who aren't inclined to just jump into those waters and try to convince their coworkers that there's a new way to work, Mm -hmm. we need to do a little bit more in terms of holding their hand, showing them the value, giving them more information, not just saying there's a homepage with an email enter field, click here to get started, which is what we've been relying on up until now. What were some of the aha moments that you experienced very early there as you're trying to basically take this product and fit it to channels? One is just that when you have a product that is so strong on the organic and word of mouth side of things, driving additional demand through marketing programs is actually quite hard because you're trying to build off of a fairly strong base. So one thing that we've talked about a lot is that Slack has this incredible organic word of mouth. How do we supercharge that and make it easier for people to talk about Slack, start Slack teams, incentivize them? One example there, and I think the product can do a huge amount there. So One example is Slack recently released a new product feature called Shared Channels where you can actually work with another company, an external organization inside of your own Slack instance where each Slack team is sharing a channel and you don't have to go and switch to email when you're working with people. So, outside so you bring of your in own. an agency for a project. You can exactly. That way. The agency use case is a, is a key one. So if you have a brand or advertising campaign and you're working with an external agency, how do you not need to change your workflows that you do internally for that external partnership? You just bring them right into a shared Slack channel and you continue working in that way. That has potentially huge virality effects as well as building a moat around Slack. So that's a little bit where the product and then growth marketing will meet in terms of, okay, the product enables you to share a channel, but how do we make sure that people know about it? How do we create really great invite and email flows? How, when that other company gets an invite to a shared channel, do they understand what it means? If they're not already a Slack user, how do we enable them to start a Slack team and then accept that shared channel request? Uh, so it's a lot about building those, those flows. So you mentioned the team started with performance marketing. Mm-hmm. Walk me through how you built it out from there? And was that more of a a proactive approach? Or as you guys were scaling your operations, did things start to bend and you had to respond to that? 
we knew we wanted to build out the team because we'd already done enough in 2016, mostly before I joined, to know that there was value there. And I'll be completely honest, I am not an expert in performance marketing. That is a function where people go really deep and they have a lot of very, very specific knowledge, particularly when you're spending a lot of money. So the first thing I did is I hired somebody yeah. who knew a lot more about performance marketing than I did. And I was honest about the fact that I think I'm really good at asking questions to learn and test assumptions, but that doesn't mean that I can talk about the intricate details of setting up a really great search or display campaign. And so we hired somebody who had a lot of experience and could recommend ways to build out the team. And the great thing about performance marketing is the ROI is really obvious. So you can justify increased spend and increased headcount based on the performance. Yeah. And that's what we've done. So we had this team of three with really hefty budgets and really hefty goals. And they've been successful enough that now that team is expanding and taking on new responsibilities based on the success that they've had so far. So one of my great philosophies with growth, because it spans so many areas, is I really only know enough to be dangerous in many of these areas. And the biggest thing I can do for Slack is hire people who know a lot more than I do and give them free reign to do their best work. That was Adam Risman talking to former head of growth marketing at Slack, Rachel Hepworth. Rachel now leads marketing at Notion. You can hear or read the full interview on the Intercom blog. You'll find the link for that in the show notes. Andrew Chen is general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Andrew's name kept popping up when we asked guests, who in growth do you think we have the most to learn from? So we knew we just had to have him on. In 2015, Andrew joined Uber to lead their rider growth product teams. At that time, the company and the user base were already extremely large. So we wanted to know, when you have a market that's so big, where do you start? With established systems already in place, how do you prioritize all the different problems you could have solved? Here's Andrew. It's funny because I think when you look inside any of these hyper-growth companies, what you find is that first and foremost, they have, and, and this is a good signal, right? Which is that they've grown so fast organically that they've actually not really needed to necessarily go super deep on the data yeah. and, you know, churn models and understanding all the kind of nuances. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step of anybody coming into one of these teams is to focus on just understanding what data you know, is there? what the hell is going on, yeah. right? And you got to do that first, right? So the second piece is then to identify some of the key opportunities that are actually, you know, in there. And then you want to then execute and then you want to, you know, measure and like iterate and you want to kind of execute that loop mm -hmm. as fast as you can. So I think, you know, for us on the driver side, there were two kind of really obvious things coming in that needed a bunch of help. I think the very first part is for anyone who's actually tried to sign up as an Uber driver, um, you quickly figure out that actually it's a really long process because you actually have to sign up. You have to give a lot of information. You have to give your a copy of your driver's license. You have to get background checked. In some countries, like in Europe, you have to get it licensed. So, you know, it actually takes several months to become an Uber driver. And so this is this kind of high consideration, high intent sign up funnel is is kind of similar to the same problem that like, you know, fintech companies mm -hmm. might face, like a wealth front. Yeah. Or if you are a long, complicated, you know, you have to do an API integration if you're like a B2B company, you know, it sort of feels like that. And so a lot of this is really trying to understand, well, you know, what are, what are the places where, you know, folks are falling off? What's the order of operations in terms of like how much you need to ask people 
do you need to ask people for their email? Is a phone number okay? Is, you know, do you need to actually have, you know, their full address up front before you do all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Or can you kind of defer that and get them like excited about the opportunity before you try to pull them through? Yeah. And so when you ended up transitioning to then the um, the demand side of the equation with writers, right. was that a really different muscle for you? Or were you able to apply a lot of the same frameworks? Compare and contrast those for me a little bit. Right, yeah. So so the thing to, to think about with the drivers is that they're almost like small businesses, mm-hmm. right? They're very motivated by um, you know earnings. That's really you know what they're focused on. They have a very long, complicated funnel to get all the way to yeah. the end. One example of something that really works on the supply side is referrals, right? So drivers referring other drivers, you know, that's something where because drivers are in it for earnings, you know, referrals is like awesome. And it actually selects for drivers that are even better. Mm -hmm. Now let's compare that to the rider side. You know, rider side is usually much simpler to, you know, sign up, right? Because you're basically just put in your phone number and you install yep, you, you know, want a low friction you want them to sort of have that aha moment of right. having the car show up and get in be seamless exactly right and and you know you still need a credit card in many cases in other parts of the world we actually just go also all cash so that lowers the friction even more so you're talking about a, a order of magnitude difference in terms of the complexity of the funnel right so that's different the other thing that's different is that the channels become, you know, different. I was just talking about how referrals work so well for drivers because drivers are trying to earn more. Now think of it this way. If you have a rider that's in it to get a discount, you know, what kind of rider are they going to be? They're probably going to be a rider that doesn't spend as much money, right? So (laughs) referrals actually brings, you know, slightly like less, you know, good, um, you know, riders. So I think you find a bunch of these nuances in there that are, that are very interesting. I think, you know, one of the obvious observations about Uber these days is that, the driver side has more churn mm-hmm. also than the rider side. The riders kind of like start by taking rides to the airport and then they're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like I should take it when I'm out, you know, and yeah, out and about. Those, and those levers know. like fixed rates that you lock people into right. for a week or two or things like that. They totally. just become more habit forming. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's more of a habit, et cetera, et cetera, versus, you know, the drivers, I think, are always sort of comparing this stuff, earning with Uber versus other earning opportunities, including picking up, you know, a part-time job within the services industry mm-hmm. or whatever. So speaking about acquisition, I want to sort of shift the conversation away from, from Uber a little bit and look at sort of, I don't know if I want to call it a trend, but something we've seen with a lot of high-profile startups, particularly in the e-commerce space, right, where they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and just gone all in on acquisition and seen sort of this local maximum that peaks and trails off and they, they end up crashing back to earth because there's no retention there. What's the big lesson that we should be taking from this and why do we keep seeing it? Right. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why these business models that have like these B2B SaaS companies that have like a recurring, you know, revenue model, mm-hmm. like that's very nice. Yeah. The transactional marketplace like Uber where you have where riders can actually use it every day for commuting, it's it's very nice because that regularity and that habit formation sort of means that you have this LTV and it also means that that engagement can power organic acquisition right. because you naturally tell your friends about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like going back to the, you know, kind of the Dropbox example where you look at Slack, you look at a bunch of these, you know, the thing that's really nice is that you have a natural network formation that sort of happens. And then every user has a has the opportunity to then acquire one of their coworkers, yeah. you know, and, and you can analyze it even more, right? Like, you know, the products that, for example, are like DocuSign mm-hmm. where, you know, folks that are collaborating within a workflow kind of you involve people from across companies, that's going to be natural, even more viral than something that sort of just exists within a company. 
right? How many folks have discovered intercom because, you know, they see the little thing know, on the bottom yep. right and have a conversation <laughs> with someone and they right. happen to have a business that encounters a lot of this. Exactly. Industry. And they're like, oh, I want that too. Yep. Right. And so you get all this like free, really interesting, you know, acquisition that comes from that. I think the, the, you know, when I look at some of the high profile cases that didn't work, there's a couple things that I think work in concert to make them more difficult. The first is you have an acquisition model that is kind of a single channel, right? Maybe that's Facebook ads, maybe that's Google ads, maybe it's, you know, SEO, maybe it's, you know, one of these things, but you especially don't have any, you know, natural virality, natural kind of network, you know, kind of thing in there. So I think that's one thing. The second is that, especially when when we're talking about, you know, let's keep beating up on e-commerce. I think <laughs> one of the things with e-commerce is that, you know, oftentimes if you're buying something like a mattress or you're buying something that's like a car, you know, this is something that only happens. If it know, does its very job, that's a one decade purchase. Right, exactly. And so because of that, you end up in this whole acquisition treadmill where you got to run really, really, really fast, you know, while this whole thing is going. And then by the way, if you're on a single point of failure on your acquisition channel, then you know, a lot of times these acquisition channels are a little bit like this arbitrage that kind of exists for a period of time. And if you hit it at exactly the right period of time, you can build a pretty decent company, but then eventually you should just plan on losing it, right? This whole thing is also another reason why a lot of games companies are are hard to fund uh, from a venture perspective because, you know, there's built-in natural churn, right? Dating apps are also like this built-in natural turn. If you do, if if you do your jobs, then you know, like every user. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. So you have that combined with, again, you know, this desire that you have to actually buy the traffic because it's very hard in a dating app to be like, oh, like you should download this too. Like that kind of doesn't make sense. Uh Right. So I think, you know, this is the kind of thing to watch out for, especially if you're building something that is in, you know, fintech in particular, like personal finance, right. Um, Things like, healthcare, right? These are all things that you have to be very careful about and make sure that you understand how those dynamics are going to play out long-term. Andrew Chen there. Andrew has been on the show twice, so you can continue listening to that conversation or a more recent chat he had with Des Trainer last year. Both episodes are linked in the show notes. So now we come to our final part of today's special 3 million downloads episode. We end with the voice the show started with all those years ago, Intercom co-founder Des Trainer, who is joined now by Chief Product Officer Paul Adams to talk about our product principles. We use product principles a lot in Intercom to guide us in terms of how we build, what we build, and how we make decisions. And this conversation really struck a chord with listeners. Here's Des. Paul, let's start at the top. What the hell do we mean when we say a principle? Yep, that's a good place to start. Uh, so a principle is a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for behavior that gets you the results you want. That's read straight out of websites, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, Can yeah. you give me something it's a, a bit more? Definition. <laughs> give me so, a bit more grounded there. So what that means is it's about predictable behavior in the future, basically. So right. we're, we're big into principles, as you know. And the reason we got big into principles is because they're a way of encoding your mistakes and successes. Right. So any business anywhere obviously wants to repeat their successes and avoid repeating their mistakes, mm-hmm. which is easy to say and hard to do. Hard to do institutionally and organizationally for sure and so principles is our way or the best way we've found in 
which codify all the mistakes. Like codifying mistakes sounds like we're going to guarantee that we lock them in. Like, can you expand a bit on like, like, so let's say we found, hey, three projects all went off course because of blah. Mm-hmm. Do we then like, is there a principle to be found in that? Or is it like, hey, if this is a consistent pattern that we need to like make sure no one ever repeats, we'll have a principle about the positive behavior that we want. Is that what you mean? Basically, yeah. There's lots of, I mean, maybe it's useful actually to share some examples sure. without talking about this in the abstract, but yeah. it's basically about us having a predictable system. Yeah. You know, like obviously our goal, like any product team, any product engineering team is ship great software that customers love, yeah. value, use, et cetera. Don't ship things that they don't need or don't yeah. uh, take too long doing it or yeah. don't go off track. And yeah. there's a whole load of like anti-patterns probably in how you would want to run a project, like yeah. project being canceled or like big epic re-steer in the middle. Yeah. All those types of things. And so we, over the years, we were, you know, reflect a lot, as I'm sure many teams do, like doing a kind of retrospective. As like what was practice. good about this? What was bad about yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. What, write it all down. Yeah. Like these are things that worked yeah. well, this didn't at the end of any project, or even sometimes, you know, partway through a project. Yeah. And just over the course of like years of doing this, patterns repeated, repeated, repeated. And we said, okay, let's not do this again and then have a retro to learn the same thing we've already learned five times. Yeah. Let's actually try and write it down. Yeah. And then we kind of, stumbled upon principles, I think, as the yeah. best way to do that. Let's maybe, so that we can ground our listeners, let's talk through a couple of principles and then we'll kind of go back to the kind of the, the what, why, how, et cetera. What are our principles for how we build product? Yeah, so we have three top level product principles. We right. actually have a bit of a system. We have three top level product principles. They're the things that we care about the most, I think. The R&D team has actually added a fourth principle since this was recorded. We're constantly evolving and re-evaluating our principles. Anyway. Back to Paul. Then we have five design principles that are specific to the design team and the discipline of design. And then we have five engineering principles, again, specific yeah. to the discipline of engineering. So we like have 13 in effect, but in practice, yeah. any individual only has to observe eight, right? Like yeah, exactly. everyone inherits the top three. Yeah. And then if you're an engineer, you've got five engineering principles on top. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and and that, that's true. And yeah. 13 does sound like a lot. Yeah. But, you know, you'd, you'd hope that, like, any team in the company is familiar with all the principles. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, 13, yeah. you don't have to remember and recite 13 principles. But in practice, mm-hmm. you should actually, again, this is about predictable behavior. Yeah. In practice, you should see people enacting these principles. Mm-hmm. So, for example, let me go through some. One of our product principles, like we have three at the top level. One of them is start with the problem. So this is, again, a principle that came from us realizing that we oftentimes weren't starting with, with a problem. Instead, we were starting with like some cool idea we had or yeah. some kind of fictionalized, hypothetical customer Wouldn't problem. Wouldn't it be cool if type thing? Yeah. Or, right. you know, I talked to one customer and I think, they ha- and I think everyone right. suddenly like extrapolate out to like, you know, yeah. thousands of people. And, you know, the, the kind of reason this principle exists is because we believe that any solution that we ship is only ever as good as the problem understanding. Yeah. Right. So like, the better you understand the problem, the better yeah. thing you'll design. It's that Einstein thing isn't a problem like well stated is a problem half solved. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So we spend a ton and ton of time on problem definition, problem yeah. prioritization. First yeah. of all, is this an important problem? Yeah. Do we understand this problem? Okay, now we understand this problem a bit better. Yeah. Let's like restack it against the other problems that we, yeah. that we you know, think we've a good understanding of. And like, to be clear, like, so like a problem, like, like a shit version of, of this would be like, the problem is we need ticketing. Yeah, yeah much again, these principles are years old at this mm-hmm. point. Or we didn't have these principles would be, you know, there might be a design review or product review in a project. And, you know, like a leader typically would come in, someone leading, leading the team and they, you know, you, you and me, we've both experienced this different times coming in and like seeing work and, you know, we'd start asking questions like, um, you know, have we shown this to customers? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they say? Did that, you know, did they react well to it? Can yeah. they just, can they like articulate 
what problem this is solving yeah. for them? Is it solving a real problem or is it like hypothesized or yeah. can they like give us really specific examples of how this would actually change how they work, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes what we find is the understanding of the customer problem we're trying to solve is really ambiguous and vague and loose. Okay. And as a result, then the project is like ambiguous, vague and loose. Yeah. And it gets pulled in all different directions. What you end up with is just people disagreeing with each other, very, very opinion driven rather than mm-hmm. kind of evidence driven. Yeah. As opposed to a project where we spent a ton of time up front understanding the problem. Yeah. And then downstream from that, when you come into a you know, design review or product mm-hmm. review and start asking these sorts of questions, you just get way richer, better answers yeah. because we actually spent the time to understand the problem yeah. up front. Our other two are think big, start small and ship to learn rather than kind of walk through both of those as well. I think one important point we should stop on reflect on here is um, something I've really believed all the time. Most of the time when I see companies decide that they want to build out some principles or they end up basically saying stuff that is just generally true. Like ship, ship good software. Ship good software, or like design matters or yeah. like, you know, focus on the user or whatever. Like, right. And what they don't really do, in my opinion, is like come up with a principle that's pointy enough mm-hmm. such that there is an equal and opposite counter principle in a sense. And right. I think that's a, an acid test that we've always had for principles. So like if we take, say like, well, you can pick, think big, start smaller, ship to learn. What's mm-hmm. the opposite principle and when would that be good? Yeah, yeah, this is actually a really important point because like you said, like, you know, I've often talked to people about principles in other companies and their principles and, and values mm-hmm. too, by extension. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the distinction there potentially, but it tends to be truisms. Mm-hmm. You never disagree with that. Yeah. So think big, start small is a great example where the kind of basics of this principle is kind of self-explanatory are when people start working on a project. And by the way, these principles are in, in order. So yeah. it's start with the problem. Okay. Then think big, start small. Yeah. Then shift to learn. Right. Gotcha. So like you've started with the problem. Yeah. Uh, you have a deep understanding of the problem. And then the next stage is, okay, think big. What's the like, big dream, the, mm-hmm. the vision? Like what, you know, what's the concept design for this, solving this problem? So think big and don't be limited by any kind of constraints. And then start small and take the big idea, take that bigger vision, this longer term plan or dream, and then start small, break it down into like the smallest, smallest pieces and keep scoping back, 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 back until you have the kind of smallest coherent solution. Mm-hmm. And so that that's how we want people to work. And the biggest piece of feedback we get within this principle is like how small is small and you know, we we push for very, very small. So the the, the opposite of this principle yeah. is also valid, right. which would be like, think small, start big. Right. That is a valid principle too. What would that look like? Um, for think small, start big. Like I imagine like any company who's working on infrastructure, right. for example, right? So imagine you're like an electricity company or like new, even like, you know, renewable energy company. Yeah. Now there's like definitely innovation in that space too. Yeah. Like Tesla comes to yeah. mind, for example. But if you're taking on something that has significant infrastructural costs, yeah. you obviously need to start big. Yeah. There's no version, like yeah. there's no version of a road infrastructure. It doesn't yeah. mean building loads of roads. Yeah. And so, or, you know, if you're like Apple, who, you know, apparently are building a car, designing and building yeah. a car. There's no, they can't ship half a car. No, yeah, or, or, right, cast yeah. over the wheel, you yeah, know. Yeah. So, so, so there is like start big. Yeah. And then, yeah, depending on like how, how, how much innovation matters, yeah. you can think small. Like it's, so like the, the latter, like, so it's like think big and then start small. That small is like proportionate to that big. So like, right. so it might be feasible to say, think small, start big, which, which is what we're actually saying is find the, a small next step, ship all of it and mm-hmm. you're done. Right. right. What yeah. we're saying is like envision like the whole system, yeah. find the first valuable piece, ship that, but you definitely have one eye on the rest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like the smallest coherent solution. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, the way we do this in practice is uh, we build a little table. 
And the table has in it like all the kind of components of the solution. And then it has effectively two columns, sorry, three columns, essentials, Mm -hmm. then differentiators, Mm -hmm. and then not now. Right. And and this idea of like not now is really powerful because, Mm. you know, saying no is really critical to any kind of product strategy and product execution. And so if you have a column that says no, Mm -hmm. that's really hard for people to actually like, you know, be comfortable with. Whereas not now. Oh, yeah, Yeah. not now. Okay, later maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, and like the thing I care about most is on the not now is it's Mm -hmm. on the no list. Mm -hmm. You don't have a no list. So the essentials is like, you know, you kind of almost start by putting every single thing into the not now, yeah. every single part and of the drag solution, them back. Yeah. and then, yeah, painfully drag them over. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another kind of key component of this principle, think big, start yeah. small, is it should be excruciatingly painful to yeah. pull things into the essentials yeah. or then differentiators, yeah. which is then the, the thing we go and build. Yeah. And like, I think like to tie this back to the, like, where is it valuable? The biggest value you get as an organization by having stated principles and for us that means they're like they're printed on the walls they're like re- referred to in every sort of document to, mm-hmm. defining a product scope yeah is the predictability it's predictability of the leadership team it's predict- predictability of you of me yeah it's you know great leadership hinges on some sense of predictability which mm-hmm. is like if you're consistent in how you apply your logic it makes it so much easier to work alongside you because you know like if you walk into a product critique, people can probably guess what the first words out of your mouth will be. That was Des Trainer and Paul Adams. You can catch them on their very own podcast, Intercom on Product. The link, you've guessed it, is in the show notes. The conversations you've heard today are only a sprinkling of the insight contained within our show's archives. You'll find everyone from HubSpot CEO Yamini Rangan to CAMS CTO Will Larson in there. Not to mention, we have new episodes every week. So after 3 million downloads, thanks for listening.